Welcome, everyone, to the second in this semester's um, scholar series. Uh, my name is Mark Bouchain, the library director. And before we get going, I just want to ask everybody to please turn off cell phones, other <coughs> noisy devices, um, and to also let you know that there's there's free coffee and pizza and stuff in the back. Yeah, Hello, buddy, welcome back. Okay. It's, it's very it's nice to see you back on campus. And to also let you know that we have a few more um, upcoming events uh, in the next few weeks. The next one coming up is next Tuesday at noon. Uh, it's the Palm of the Hand Memoir Ready Workshop. It's always held the first Tuesday of the at noon. And there's no need to register. You just show up. You just sit at one of the tables over there and we work on uh, one-page memoir. Then the following day, Wednesday, February 6th, we have a screening of Mrs. Eversborg, Mrs. Evers Boys, uh, which is related to the, um, the year-long theme of the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks, which is uh, most of you know is our actual campus read. And then the following Wednesday, uh, February 13th at 3 o'clock, right here, we have the next in our scholar series. Professor David Bennett uh, will be giving his talk representing Henrietta Lacks, investigating media's role in covering race and science after 1961. So, there are more events coming up this summer, but or, or this semester, but you will be notified via email or any other. Now, what I'd like to do is introduce our featured speaker. I'm very excited uh, to introduce our own Professor Jenna Hoban, actor, playwright, and theater professional. She has an equal love of jogging and red wine. She holds a BFA in acting, I believe it's acting, um, from Wright State, and an MFA, also in acting, from Penn State. Um, she also has a daughter who is the leader of the hockey cheerleading team. <laughs> so if you guys ever go to the hockey games and you see like five girls running around the rink, she's the one that's leading them. Just letting you know. So, well, yeah. You mentioned jogging and red wine. Can she jog with red wine? Well, I will leave that up to you to ask her because questions are encouraged throughout the talk. Okay. So please join me in welcoming Jenna Hope. Thank you, Mark. The answer is to be determined. <laughs> But I'll take that challenge. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for coming today. My name is Jenna Hoban, theater professor here at Lake State. I am your scholarly lecturer for the day. <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> Just that extra mustard. <laughs> Thank you. Um, more, maybe more accurately, I'll be your storyteller today because telling stories is what I really do. Teaching stories is my job, and performing stories is my passion. 
I'm happy to be here today to what makes a story, a story like that of Henrietta Lacks and her exceptional cells worth telling and worth retelling. In the last two years, I've become very interested in the art of adapting. So on that note, I have a question for you. How many of you are familiar with A Christmas Carol? By Charles Dickens. Well done, university. At a university library, I should expect no less. Um, yes, the 1843 novella by Charles Dickens. And does anybody want to share with us the basic premise? What's the basic story of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol? What happens? Gail, you look like you're ready to talk. Redemption, okay. Anybody want to tell me a little bit more? Who's our guy? Who's our main guy in A Christmas Carol? Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, right. And so basically you have this curmudgeonly old dude who hates people and hates Christmas until he's visited by several ghosts. And then he undergoes a change of heart. And by the end, he's a much happier person. Are you, are you in the conversation with me? So he changes his heart forever. Thank you, Mark. <laughs> I am particularly familiar with the story because I performed in the stage version of A Christmas Carol six times. First as the giggling sister, which is not really a compliment. Um, if you've read the book, the character in the book is not the giggling sister. Do you know what she's called in the book? The plump sister. <laughs> after that, I played Mrs. Cratchit. And after that, I played Tiny Tim. Um, which is a little strange, as I was 32 and female. And I'm of the opinion that Tiny Tim should be played by an adorable child. I think there's something lacking in the story if a 32-year-old woman plays the, point, the part in just boys' you know, clothing. But in this production, I was given the part because among our company of actors, I was simply the shortest. And then after that, for five years in a row, I played the Ghost of Christmas Past. Five years in a row. And after the fifth year, seven shows a week, I was renamed the Ghost of Christmas Pissed. <laughs> so I have a little story for you, as this is about stories, about one time when I was doing the Christmas Carol. So it was the first time that I was in the play as the giggling slash plump sister. And we did have an adorable boy in the role of Tiny Tim. And uh, so you can just imagine, this is a small child, carries a crutch on stage, so immediately we care about this little boy. And I became very fond of the actor who was playing the part. His name is what? Well, his name is Luke. Um, I haven't seen him in 20 years, but I imagine he's still adorable in my mind. So little Luke was off stage. His scene, his first scene was over, and he, he didn't have to come back on until the end of the play. He was downstairs in the green room. That's what we call the backstage area. And um, there had been an event at the theater and lots of food. And so once the play began, any of the food that was left over was given to us actors, the starving actors who were in the green room, particularly those of us who were non-paid apprentices. I was in the dressing room at the time, but I heard the story later that Tiny Tim, we'll call him Tiny Tim, was enjoying some of the hors d'oeuvres with some of the older guys, and, and they were all just goofing around and having a good time, and then Tiny Tim pops a meatball in his mouth, and he gags, and he starts choking. And everybody's standing around, like, you know, having a good time. They thought the kid was pretending. They thought he was acting. So already, I think you're with me on this, 
there's an aspect of danger in the room. There's a child for whom we already care about, and I've just told you he's choking. Just so you know, it's a happy ending. It all worked out okay. Um, he was given the Heimlich maneuver by the guy playing the ghost of Christmas future. Picture that. A man dressed as the Grim Reaper saving Tiny Tim's life. Now, if you find me later, I can tell you lots of backstage stories that will rival the onstage story of A Christmas Carol. But for right now, I want to get to the classic itself. Um, it's so good a story that it has been told and retold many, many times. And while you, my scholar audience, my, my fellow colleagues, recognize the novella by Charles Dickens, I want you to know that I also asked my students if they were familiar with A Christmas Carol. Now remember, some of them were born in 2000, okay? So we gotta keep that in mind. And they were also familiar with the title. One of them said, because of the Barbie movie. I had to ask her to repeat herself two times. And then I repeated it myself. Did you say Barbie as in the doll? And so I looked it up. How many retellings of A Christmas Carol do you think there are? And if you have a guess, plays, radio shows, television, adaptations, movies, what's a guess? Just give me a number. A thousand. A thousand. OK, you've overshot, but I like it. I like go bold. 800. 800. 100. 457. You're my winner. Oh, this is about going over. <laughs> it's 145. So check this out. 20 radio recordings, 11 other audio recordings, 59 stage versions, 21 film versions, including Mickey's Christmas Carol, The Muppets Christmas Carol, and you guessed it, Barbie in The Christmas Carol. 26 TV versions, including A Flintstones Christmas Carol and Bugs Bunny's Christmas Carol. Three direct to DV, including Sesame Street's Christmas Carol and The Smurfs Christmas Carol. Four operas, one bilingual edition, and a partridge in a pear tree. 145 retellings of the same story. Close seconds include retellings of Peter Pan. Roughly 97, not including video games because why? And uh, The Wizard of Oz, 133, and that includes comics, but doesn't include games and musical references. All great stories, all of which have the qualities of magic, compelling plots, and characters we love. And the story of Henrietta's cells offers no less, maybe more. What makes a good story? Well, there are many, many contributing factors to a good story, too many to examine in a single lecture. So please know that my list is distilled. We're going to start with character. Because I've noticed that when I ask people, when I ask my students or just anyone in my life what they like about a story, a book, a play, a movie, they generally tell me with whom they relate or didn't relate. Oh, yes, my dad also worked in a factory. Ah, yes, my mom was also a school teacher, so I related with that school teacher. Ah, I too accidentally killed a witch with my house. <laughs> or I just had nothing in common with those people, and that character was so mean, or I just didn't find that little tinker fairy to be believable. The bottom line is that a good story has characters for whom we care. 
like that little boy I told you about in the beginning of my lecture, a little boy that was compromised and immediately we're all caring for him. Or Dorothy, the story only works if we care enough that we want her to get home to Kansas. And after all those scary monkeys, I think we do. The story of Scrooge only works as we see a man's soul in trouble and we root for him to change. Now, the story of Henrietta, who is the hero? We'll get to that in a minute. The next thing that we need from a good story is, well, a good story. And by that I mean a plot. And what a good plot has is a series of obstacles that our character, for whom we care, must overcome. We'll call it conflict. And lastly, in my opinion, what makes a story worth telling and retelling is the conversation the conversation to which it contributes and which it then stimulates, like this conversation we're having today. Um, it may be a national conversation that the work refers to, like the Second Amendment, or it may be a universal conversation, like do one's earthly actions determine his or her afterlife? The conversation is what makes a story relevant and in many instances, lasting. As I snuggled up into my couch to begin The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by Rebecca Skloot, the book chosen for our campus read, a concept of which I am a fan and a supporter, as I'm sure you're aware while I stand here today, I had two simultaneous thoughts. One, this book is going to be an uncomfortable journey. And two, I have heard this story before, which is not a bad thing. Um, uncomfortable with facing the injustices of our country's past, I took a break from the book. And I finally remembered that I had heard this story before on one of my favorite podcasts. Anybody else familiar with Radiolab? Raise your hands high. Be proud of Radiolab fan. Okay, if you haven't, I highly recommend it. It's an excellent podcast. Look it up any episode at random. I, I'm pretty sure it'll have you hooked. And, and re uh, report back to me on that. If you, if you try it and you don't like it, I need to know, because I don't think we can be friends anymore. <laughs> I'm kidding, I like you guys all. All right, so Radiolab, produced by the public radio station WNYC in New York. And I watched the movie, starring and produced by Oprah Winfrey. Guys, if you have a story starring and produced in part by Oprah Winfrey, chances are you're dealing with a pretty good story. She's not likely to take a chance on some stinker of a story. She knows what she's doing. So all three of these mediums, now we have a book, a podcast, and we have a movie, all stem from the work of the book's author, Rebecca Skloot. So we're gonna start there. The book, reflected by the movie, and addressed in the podcast. Who is the character for whom we care in the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks? What do you think? You can't get it wrong, and I'm not grading you, so feel free. Who is the character that you care for the most in this book? Mark. Well, I would say it's the daughter. Oh, Deborah. Yeah, yeah, you care for Deborah. But I was also extremely intrigued by the author herself and what she was going to try to piece all of these parts of the story, dealing with all the conflict 
and not knowing what's not in the server phone and So, right. so two totally different parts of the story, but I was you connected to each. Connected to both. Anybody else? Well, what about Henrietta? <laughs> I'm not done yet, Mark. I'm not done. Well, I think there's a reason why Henrietta's name didn't come up. There's just not really an active character, is she? It's all about her. She's a catalyst. She is in the theater what we call the inciting incident, or her cells are, I guess. So I, I'm not surprised that the name didn't come up right away, because she's not really a character in the book. The book is about what happens after her death. And I, I'm going to side with Mark here. I think Deborah is, a, is probably the protagonist. I mean, Oprah Winfrey is going to play Deborah in the movie. That's going to be a big role. But I think it's really important that we consider Rebecca Skloot. Nailed it, Boucher. Nailed it. <laughs> so in this movie version, Rose Byrne plays the author herself, plays Rebecca Skloot. Now, Rebecca Skloot writes herself into the book. And she is reflected in the movie, played by Rose Byrne. And I don't know if you can conjure an image of Rose Byrne for yourself right now, but she is a beautiful, successful female actor in today's society. She's not accepting a supporting throwaway part. She's in it to win it, too. So you've got Oprah Winfrey playing Deborah, and you have Rose Byrne playing the author of the book. And I'm with you. I think she's the carrier of the action. I think when we look at what the word protagonist means, it means carrier of the action. And it's somebody who I told you earlier is going to face a bunch of obstacles. Well, Henrietta's gone. She has faced her obstacles. Deborah faces some, many, but it's really, we follow the journey of the play. We follow what Skloot has to do to investigate and overcome obstacles to get the information. And eventually, Deborah goes on that journey with her. I'm not saying that that's the right answer, but it is one answer. So thank you for helping us out. All right, so um, do I have this? Oh, yeah. Okay, so the next thing is that last spring, I guess, and we had, we had chosen this book as our campus read when my colleague present today, Spencer Christensen, discovered that there was a play titled Gila based on the same story by Lauren Gunderson and Geetha Reddy. Lauren Gunderson is, um, as of 2017, was named our most produced American playwright. She's the author of Silent Sky, which was produced by the LSSU students this very time a year ago, based on a true story of a female scientist. She has also written a work called The Book of Will, which is based on the publication of Shakespeare's work, also based on some historical facts. She's done lots of adapting of work. My point is, she's the most produced playwright in our country. She's probably second this year, but she was first last year. She's not picking stinkers for material. She's picking winners. And she teamed up with Geetha Reddy to write Gila. When Gunderson teamed up with Geetha Reddy to create a theatrical retelling of Henrietta Lacks' cells, doesn't include Skloot's tireless research or relationship with the, Skloot or with the Lacks family. So I examined this play, Gila, in contrast to the book with the students in my class, a survey of great playwrights just last semester. One of the main differences of the play from Skloot's story is that Gunderson and Reddy are not bound by reality. In the theater, the dead can walk, and dogs can talk, and in the play, both do just that. 
A deceased Henrietta is a character in the play who walks in and out of scenes where her cells are the point of focus, including a scene in space where she is kept company by a talking Russian dog. So in this play, Henrietta has a much stronger presence. Now, since it's unlikely that any of you have read this yet-to-be-published play, I'll share with you the conclusion that our class came to last semester, that the care in character in the play Gila by Gunderson and Reddy seems to be shared equally by the characters of Henrietta and Deborah, the mother and the daughter, who are reaching beyond the barriers of time, space, and death to find one another and know one another. And many of us in my class found that to be not only relatable, but quite moving. Now, while A Christmas Carol can boast 145 retellings of various mediums, it has yet to achieve one of our culture's highly renowned, most visible vehicles for story. You catch it? That's the Law and Order theme song. You can, you can raise the volume. Yeah, I've got more sound cues. Thank you. Okay, so Law and Order. In 2010, an episode of Law and Order aired based on the ever-surviving cells and the family members of the cell's deceased owner. The episode is titled Immortal. Okay, my timing was off a little bit there, but I want to be immortal. You'll forgive me, right? Okay, so we can blame it on Mark. All right, so um, in Immortal, Law and Order takes a little bit of a liberty here. Henrietta Lacks doesn't appear, nor is she mentioned. However, the same idea of these cells that last on and on is present. So how can they do that? Did you see the episode? Did anybody see it? Okay, good. Um, or not good, I don't care. <laughs> it's fine if you did. So in this episode, what they have done is they've created a character, because you can do this in TV, and you can do it on Law & Order, it's fiction. They, they find stories, but then they fictionalize them. So what they've done is they created a character, and they named him Nathan Robinson. You want to guess what his cell line is named? Nay-Ro. That's right. In Law & Order, it's about the Nay-Ro cells. So those of you that are familiar, just give me an idea. How many of you are familiar with the show? Do you have it? Have you watched it? Some of you have? Okay. All right. So it's the same structure every time where the order happens first, and it's about it's a generally a crime that kicks off the episode, and then we investigate the crime, and in the second half they're in the courtroom. So it's an actor's dream, right? Um, my husband and I live in New York, and, and we have been actors for a long time, and it's sort of pivotal moment in an actor's career when they book an episode on Law & Order. I have yet to do so, but it is still running. <laughs> Sheffield can boast two episodes, so he's got that going for him. Now, what's different is that if you're a day player, it's no offense, but it's hard to really invest in the day player characters. They come on, they get murdered, you never see them again. Um, or you have a witness in the courtroom, and we don't really have a whole lot of time to get to know them. But there are also recurring characters in the show. And so those ones we do get to know. Even though it doesn't have a continuous story, we do over time get to know these characters. And we look forward to our favorite actors on the show. So in this episode, um, sorry, I'm going to get just go ahead and give it away. But I do hope that you you know go back through the archives and find a 2010 version of Law & Order called Immortal. But in case you don't, here's what happens. Um, Nathan Robinson is long dead before the episode begins, not unlike the story that Rebecca Skloot tells. 
whose descendants are suffering. They're poor and they're in bad health. One cousin believes that he is owed something from this company who is distributing the Nero cells. His cousin feels opposite. He says, well, I'm going to help these guys out. I have a feeling that they can help me and my son who has health problems. Again, little boy, health problems, tiny Tim, crutch, immediately, I'm sympathizing at the top of the show. First five minutes, they've got me. So what happens is the two cousins have a conflict, it gets violent, one of them dies. That's the kickoff to the show. Now, did I really invest in either of those characters? I didn't. You know, no offense, they were great, but it didn't really, it didn't really catch me. I was interested in how this parallels to our, our protagonist, our, our story, our book, our campus read. But I can tell you something. Two interesting things about this episode. One is the way that it resolves. And we're going to talk about resolution in just a second. But the other one is, um, I don't know what the other I had an idea what the interesting thing was. Oh, yeah. This other clever thing that they do in Law and Order, which is there's an actor on the show named Epitha Merkinson. Do you guys know who that is? So I see some of you nodding. Okay, so Epitha, sorry, Epitha is a Michigan native, and she plays Lieutenant Van Buren on the show. If I flashed her photo up here, you'd, you'd all recognize her because she's been on numerous TV and, and in film productions as well. So amid the plot of Nero and the descendants of the family, Epitha, or her character, Lieutenant Van Buren, takes the stand at trial. And one of the attorneys, I want you to, also you have to imagine, Epetha Merkinson is an African-American female in the role of Van Buren. So this African-American female takes the stand, and a white attorney, whom she knows, they have a long history, they're both long-running characters, questions her. And off the cuff, without thinking about it, without preparing her, he says, well now, isn't the medication that you take for your own cancer isn't that supported by these cells? And you can see on the character's face, she wasn't expecting that question. She feels exposed, embarrassed. She answers the question, and the plot resolves. We get the end of our Nero, our two battling cousins, and we get a verdict on that murder. And at the end of the episode, Van Buren faces the white attorney. And we know, now keep in mind, these aren't day players. I know I'm gonna see these characters again next week. And uh, she says, you had no right to do that. And he kind of fumbles around and says, oh, I'm really sorry. I didn't, I didn't, it just came to me in the moment. And she said, well, that wasn't for you. And that information wasn't for you to share. So really clever writing. Because for, for your average viewer, you might not have made that connection. But for anybody who had read the book or anybody who was really familiar with the story of Henrietta Lacks, you would have said, oh, okay, well, they took it to Nathan Robinson and they removed the story from Henrietta Lacks. But they didn't take away that moment where a woman, specifically an African-American woman, was exploited, where something was taken from her without her consent. And um, if you get a chance to watch the episode, I, I definitely recommend it. It'll give, you, it'll give you something else to think about in regarding this story. Okay, I'm moving on from Law and Order, although that was really fun, because um, you know I like my sound cues. All right, so what we're getting to, we talked about characters for whom we care. What we're talking about now is central conflict. And each of the mediums, each of the five that we discussed, um, all have their own unveiling of plot points. But one main conflict seems to rise to the surface, and it's not a conflict of the deceased, because as we said, Henrietta's already gone in our story. So her conflict, or his, if we're talking about Nathan Robinson, ends in 1951. The story that we're hearing in these five vehicles is a story for today, or 
as recently as 2009 when Deborah Lacks, Henrietta's daughter, died. So let's consider what central conflict exists in each retelling of these stories. You've probably heard this before, that there are only seven stories ever told. Are you familiar with this? Have you heard this before? This gets tossed around a lot in, in literature and certainly in grammatical literature is that there are, only, there are really only seven stories and any book or any movie or any play that you can come up with is going to fit into one of these categories. So if you just for a minute, does anybody have an opinion about where our story, our story of Henrietta Lacks and her immortal selves, the one that we've seen repeated in all five mediums, can it fall into one of those categories? What do you think, Mark? Uh, human versus human, so the top one. So um, we're balancing out the, the uh, medical research needs, the, the monetary needs, the, the family's uh, privacy needs, their own monetary needs, their rights. So, so it's, it's human versus human interests. There's so many different interests, mm -hmm. but they all seem to be human, and I'm about to be told why I'm wrong. <laughs> I don't know who's going to go first, Jolita or Tom. Ah. What do you say, Jelena? I hear you. Well, thank you for stealing my punchline. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> You're brilliant, Kristen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, here's the thing, is you're all right. And, and I agree with Spencer. I think the story can have many of them. I lean toward man versus society, but you're all right. It's, it's an amazing story. And Sklud has the benefit of telling it in a book so she can get it all in. We don't have as much time in a play. So in a play, a good play can get in two or three of these. But um, the book, she has an opportunity to put in many, I think. Okay, the refrain that I hear um, in each of these retellings, or the thing that strikes me personally, is the story of Henrietta's family in poor health and in need versus a thriving and profiting industry. That's why I lean toward man versus society. A student in my class last semester pointed out that the play, Gila, so I'm backing up to the play now, was not afraid to tackle the exploitation of Henrietta herself and the cells, but weren't the authors also likely to profit from the publishing of this play and the production of the play? 
I didn't have an answer for him. <laughs> and I'm not saying that this is the only conflict that exists, but um, it is one that strikes me. Now let's talk about resolution. We're coming to a close here, guys. Thanks for hanging in with me. At the end of Sklut's book, we learn that some of the proceeds from the book will be donated to the Henrietta Lacks Foundation, which offers financial contributions to people in circumstances similar to that of Henrietta Lacks and her family. Um, in the play, Hila, Deborah dies and is reunited with her mother. So we see two characters after death reunite, and um, that's a real resolution. In Law and Order, which always manages to wrap things up in a pretty tight 53 minutes, um, there is a settlement of $10 million between the HEMA research labs and the family members of the Nathan Robinson line. And I found that very satisfying as a resolution. Which leads me finally to conversation. What is the conversation that this story is bringing to the table? What national conversation? And I, I find it really embarrassing, but I think our country still has a long way to go toward racial equality. And until we get there, I believe the inequality our country has seen and still struggles with is going to be at the heart of conversation in art, literature, and music. Now, of course, I'm coming to you from the perspective of the theater. And what I generally see when I go to see a play, a contemporary play, or what I think our theater artists are doing, or trying, or trying to reflect back to us what's going on in society. And so I'm seeing this trend all over in America's theater scene. In fact, just yesterday, the Arts Center hosted a show called Ain't I a Woman? And uh, a simple show, roughly 35 minutes long, a single black female actor playing four historical characters about whom I had no idea until I saw that play. And that show's been running for over a decade, I think two decades now. Um, it's part of the conversation, and I think that that's part of the conversation that this book engages us in. But it's not the only one. As a world conversation, we could ask about ownership and monetary value of human tissue. And maybe even broader than that, from a universal point of view, conversation, are we ourselves? We could probably spend an hour discussing just that. So those are just the three that I came up with, and I'd imagine that you probably can come up with other conversations of your own. Um, one last thing before I go. Character, conflict, conversation is the element of magic. Because Scrooge is visited by three ghosts who break barriers of time and space, and Peter Pan can remain a boy forever, oh, and also fly. And then Dorothy visits Oz, where objects are animals, uh, animals that objects and animals talk, and, and magic spells always work. So what about Henrietta Lacks? Um, did you, or do you, those of you that have experienced this story in any of its formats, find something magical about the story of Henrietta Sells. Lindsay, you're nodding. Do you want to share with us? Well, for me, the most um, impactful image throughout the whole book was the image of the funeral and the storm that happened. It's ripping the roof off of her family's houses. And I'm, uh, I, I like to think about spirituality a lot. And so I was like, oh, yeah, she's definitely there. Great. Great example. Yeah. Highly theatrical in the movie. Uh, it was theatrical even reading it in the book. Anybody else? Any other? Anything else that seemed magical? 
Yeah, Mark? Um, when, when she went to her brother's house and she was having a massive panic attack, and then her brother kind of kind of transformed into this like religious leader kind of guy. Yeah, dispelled the demon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, Jelena. And the, um, the mystical things that happen that we're told about in the book are after Henrietta's death. And so part of the notion is, or I think the suggestion from, uh, is that those cells were at work after her death. And some characters go as far as to claim that um, those events are the result of Henrietta's working, so that she actually had a hand in these things. So if not magical, then certainly mystical. Um, there is this whole storyline about how cells were contaminated. And from a scientist's point of view, I think you hear that and you're like, oh, yeah, contamination of cells, that's, that's a big deal. But from a non-scientist's point of view, um, like mine or like Deborah's, oh, yeah, that was the work of Henrietta. No question. So I just love to know that there is an element of magic in this play, however you see it. I think that there is something mystical, certainly in the way that Scoot delivers it to us. So there you have it. Um, character, conflict, conversation, magic. Those are Gina Hoban's um, top four qualities of a good story that makes it worth telling and retelling. Um, and I'm going to leave you with one last question, which is, do you think among these five vehicles of storytelling, have we gotten it all out? Or do you think there is more to say on the topic? I mean, could somebody perhaps write an opera? <laughs> Singing cells. <laughs> Perhaps we've done it. Perhaps our authors have, have gotten all the information there is to get out. So I guess the other question for you is, which one tells the story most effectively? And, and I am really curious in your opinion. Does anybody, and I know you, some of you haven't seen the play or, or watched that TV show, but what do you feel? not totally answering the question, but I think that there are parts of the story that are completely not told. The, uh, you know, uh, the hospital really gets a bad name through about 85% of the book, right. but the fact that they were the only hospital that, that was helping people of color for, for all those years, right? And I understand why there certainly was mistrust, but the story of why they were doing that, you know, why were they the only ones helping? That's a hell of a story right there. Yeah, Skloot's book is thorough, and there are still stories that could be, I mean, somebody could write the play titled Johns Hopkins, 1951. You could make a musical. I mean, I wouldn't, but it could be done. 
Well, I, I look forward to continuing the conversation with you. If you have more thoughts on this, please stop me in the office, but make sure we're indoors. I just can't take it. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Thank you.